Welcome to episode 91 of Uncontained. I'm your host, Aaron Static Render, and on the show today I have musician Danny T. Levin. He's uh, kind of built up a reputation of being a one man brass band. He's done a lot of studio work for big name musicians, and I can pretty much guarantee you've heard his work and uh, just don't know it yet. He's worked with Snoop Dogg back when he was Snoop Lion and doing his reggae thing, uh, Gwen Stefani, 21 Pilots, Iggy Pop, Josh Homme, and uh, yeah, most recently, he is on the new Guar album. Uh, it's titled The Blood of God. So you, I'm sure you've heard Danny T. Levin. And if you haven't heard him yet, you're going to hear him now. Because he's uh, gone ahead and hooked us up with a track here to play for you guys at the top of the show here. Uh, before we jump into that, please uh, help support the show. And you can now wear Uncontained. That's right, I've got some merch made, and you can help support the show uh, by going to Public and getting uncontained merchandise. Yes, t-shirts, coffee cups, and, uh, you know, you name it, it's there on tpublic.com. Just search uncontained. And uh, now it is time to uh, hook you up with that track that Danny uh, passed on to me. This is off of an upcoming solo project that he's working on. This is called A Magic Kind of Thing. The spark of your smile sets the room on fire. It's just that magic kind of bling. One look at you And I know that it's true You've got that magic kind of thing The stars in your eyes And the beauty inside It's just that magic that you bring The sound of your voice Makes my whole world rejoice You've got that magic kind of thing You've got that magic kind of thing Magic kind of thing. 
doing today, Danny? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thank you for joining me. For my listeners who are familiar with musicians, obviously, but some of them might not be familiar with uh, what a studio musician does. Um, would you fill me in on what a studio musician is and how you got into uh, being a studio musician? Yeah, for sure. When, when you make records, you generally make them in recording studios. And so the musicians that you employ to help you make a record are usually called studio Um And a lot of um, records, a lot of, you know, I, I would say the majority of records, have some contributions, if not a lot of contributions, uh, from studio musicians. You get credited on the records, usually. <laughs> not always. <laughs> Um, but, you know, you're not, you're, your face isn't front and center on the album cover. You know, you're not the, uh, the artist is kind of the, the other, um, side of things where you're the, you know, front person and the featured, um, person that's kind of selling the whole, whole thing, which is usually the singer. Yeah. Um, yeah. In most, most cases. So um, you're kind of just a hired the, hand? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's a, that's sort of an, an unglamorous way to, to look at it. Okay, a more a glamorous way. You're more of like the musician's gunslinger. They call you in when you got a job to do. Yeah. I, there we go. We'll, we'll we'll make it more glamorous. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's, it often is unglamorous. A lot of times, um, you know, even working on really big records, it's like you don't actually, you're not in the studio the same time as the artist necessarily. I mean, sometimes that happens, but often is not. The artist isn't even there, and the producer uh, or maybe an engineer is there to, like, record you doing this one overdub on this one song that needs to be done uh, before they can be done with the record, and uh, a lot of times it, you know, I don't want to say factory worker to it, but there's, you know, it can kind of feel like that sometimes. Gotcha. As far as um, your responsibility, I mean, it often does involve creativity. It often does involve contributing in a um, way that is more, um, you know, sort of your own voice and being unique and all that. But primarily your, your, your number one job is to serve the song and serve the artist and serve the producer and, you know, whoever it is that's calling you to, to um, do the recording. And whatever they want, you know, if, if their opinion differs from yours, you can make your case, but, you know, ultimately they're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, that, yeah. you know, it's, it's a different mindset than being a recording artist where, you know, you're the one kind of calling the shots in the studio and saying, we're going to do this, that, and the other. How is it that somebody gets into uh, being a studio musician? Is it that they prefer to work on their own without an actual band every day? Or how does that happen? Mm, well, I feel like it, it kind of, in part, it depends on what you do. And certain types of musicians, um, you know, certain types of skill sets kind of lend themselves more to studio work versus um, doing other stuff. Uh, you know, part of it is your, um, how to phrase it, like your capacity for being the center of attention in a way that I feel like if you're a recording artist, that's really important to, like, 
need to be the center of attention because you have to command everybody's attention as the you know sort of front person okay. and as the, the focus point for music versus being and, and you know another word that's often used is, is a sideman right um, and that studio musicians are often sidemen and vice versa in as much as you know somebody hires you to play in their band. And then the band goes to go make a, a record or whatever, and then the producer of the record hears you do your thing and is like, "Oh, I want you to play on this record." And then you know it sort of spirals out that way, where you end up uh, mostly through like producers and, and kind of engineers and the people that are on the other side of the, the recording process. Um, at least for me, that's that's kind of been my path. Uh, is you know, those people then hear what. You do, and they're like, oh, that would be cool on this record. And then that's kind of how that all um, gets going, or at least that's that, that was mine. All right, and uh, I think we forgot to mention that uh, what instrument you play. You're a horn player, correct? Yeah, so, I mean, my my first instrument was actually guitar. I'm not a, not a terribly good guitar player. Uh, but I started playing guitar when I was, like, in third grade, I think, or seventh grade. And around fourth grade, I started playing trumpet in school band, uh, as one does, and kept playing trumpet. Uh, I kind of stopped playing guitar. Um, and around eighth grade or so, I started to get real serious about jazz. And uh, in high school, I kind of started to get into the classical music and um, going to college and making music composition and um, doing that kind of full thing. Um, and I also, I want to say in sixth or seventh grade, back in junior high school, I started playing baritone horn. Okay. Um, which is, plays, you know, it's, it's the same valve configuration as trumpet, but it plays an octave lower, so it's like a trombone register. Um, and so I kept doing that, and eventually I started playing valve trombone and euphonium and a bunch of other kind of similar low brass instruments. Um, and as well as continuing to play the trumpet. Um, and so I went to college and I majored in, uh, music composition and I was into like real weird, uh, jazz and, and classical music and just kind of real out there stuff. And when I was in college, I kind of had the, I was of the mindset that like, I don't want to be a professional musician that goes like, like does what I do now. <laughs> I was like, you know, I, I was like, I don't want to have to play people's music I don't like. I don't want to have to, you know, subjugate my own creative vision to the opinion <laughs> of somebody that might be less informed, you know, uh, that, that, you know, is, is really good looking but doesn't have musical um, expertise or, you know, the, the, that sort of thing. I got um, you. So which, you didn't want to be playing you know, on the Miley Cyrus or Britney Spears album or exactly, something like that. Exactly, you don't exactly. need to tiptoe around I mean, it. You can just throw it out there. Unless... Well, I mean, so, well, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm old, so Britney or, Spears, yes, Miley Cyrus wasn't, wasn't exactly around yet when I was in college. Gotcha. You <laughs> but, could have uh, seen the future. Yeah, and, you know, and that was, you know, that was very much the idea of my mindset at the time was like, you know, I don't want to play silly pop music. I want to make serious, you know, engaging, interesting music. 
that, you know, captures people's attention and, and is, you know, people and, and basically I had a very unrealistic, uh, unrealistic vision of how the world works, uh, and how one makes a living as a musician. Yeah. And, and what, how, how is that different than what it actually was? Well, for starters, as a composer, there's maybe like five people that, you know, make a living just writing music for, you know, symphony orchestras or, or whatever that are like are really making good money and, and, you know, supporting themselves and have a comfortable lifestyle. Um, and, you know, when you broaden that out into, say, like film composing or, you know, doing the music for commercials or television and that sort of stuff, um, you're sort of getting into the the same thing of like, okay, well, so now instead of, you know, this pop star telling you what to play, it's this TV producer telling you what to play, right? Yeah. It's this you know, movie director saying this is what the music needs to do. The, the other sort of thing that I didn't really get is that being in music school, you get kind of like hyper into music and into the subtleties and into the aberrations and into stuff that's weird and whatever to the point where stuff that even, you know, when I was in high school or junior high school, I would have been like, well, that's, you know, that I, I think that's cool, but that's a little weird. I don't know if I really like that. Like when I was in college, I was like, oh, this is the only real true music and all other music is, is pretend music. <laughs> you know, and I feel like being in that, you know, that setting, it sort of lends itself being surrounded by a bunch of other musicians. It's kind of like ivory tower of music making where, you know, there is no audience <laughs> that needs to be considered and there's no, you know, economic perspective or, you know, real world anything. It's just sort of like the ideal of making music and studying music theory and music history. And um, so, you know, I, I feel like I kind of bought into that curriculum a lot to the point where by the time I graduated, I had a lot of musical knowledge and a lot of uh, musical skill, but no real way to apply it. Okay. As much as, like, um, in, a, in a business sense of, like, okay, now I'm going to go out and get a job doing this. You know what I mean? And the other thing is that being a musician is gigs, not jobs, for the most part. And, you know, there are people that do have jobs and they, you know, sometimes last for a little while. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, you know, they're sort of like the unicorn people that have like a tenured position in an orchestra or something like that. Um, but increasingly, that's, you know, everything is gigs, right? And everything is, you know, you play this one gig for this one person or for this one group or whatever. And then maybe they call you the next time and you get another gig. Um, and, you know, in my mind, it was like, oh, well, I'm going to go study composition and I'm going to learn how to be like the world's greatest composer. And then I'm going to write some music that's just so compelling that people are going to like shower me with money. I think was like my, <laughs> you know, sort of my naive understanding of how composers made a living. Um, and at the time, I didn't even think about like being a trumpet player professionally. I, I think that was. You know, because that's the other aspect of being in music school is you're surrounded by people that are like so crazy, um, talented and skillful and virtuosic and, you know, all of that. And, you know, you sort of hear somebody and you're like, okay, I'm never going to be able to do that. 
and then you hear somebody else, and you're like, okay, I can't do that either. Uh, and, you know, I sort of developed this mindset that, like, okay, I'm, nobody's ever going to pay me to play the trumpet. That's not going to happen. Because I definitely can't do what these other people that are, you know, that I'm going to school with can do. Um, and, you know, those, those are people in college, like, you know, professional musicians forget about it, right? <laughs> so I think in my mind, I sort of didn't really get how, you know, how a musician makes a living, or at least, you know, I, I feel like I was, I was really not aware of how that was going to shake out for me. Um, and part of it was, I, you know, I was playing in a, like the, the main group I was playing in at the time, you know, maybe my, my senior year of college, um, in the first year or so after I graduated, I was playing in this group called Create, and Create was a free improvisation ensemble where it was like me, I was playing bal trombone, a friend of mine, Ian Suter was playing trumpet, um, a guy named Chris Schlarb was playing guitar, uh, and then bass player and drummer, uh, Orlando Greenhill and Steve Richardson. And we would get up on stage and we would just start playing. No rehearsal, no songs, no, you know, just complete 100% improvised wow. um, music. And, you know, <laughs> there, were, there were moments where I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like, this is so cool that, you know, five people can kind of have ESP and just create this, like, really cool thing just on the spot and, you know, just sort of, like, read each other's minds and, and lock in and do this amazing thing. Um, and, you know, I feel like when, at the time, in my mind, like, that was what it sounded like most of the time. Um, but looking back on it, I feel like that was probably, like, five or ten percent of our musical output was that. <laughs> and then there was the, like, you know, 60% of just sort of, like, average, jammy, kind of, like, meandering, like, okay, this isn't terrible, but it's kind of not really anything anybody would go out of their way to listen to either. And then there was, like, the other remaining part where it was, like, so unbelievably awful and unlistenable and, like, horrendous. And... <laughs> You know, I, I, I remember to this day and, and sort of one of the key, I think, turning points for me as far as making the decision to get into um, popular music and, you know, that, that kind of realm of things. Okay. Uh, was playing a show with Create where there was, I, I want to say there were like six people in the audience. And this, this was like a, you know, kind of underground hip-hop kind of, show where somebody had like just put up a PA in a restaurant after the restaurant closed. And it was a pretty big restaurant too. Okay. So we're playing to like an empty room that's probably, you know, two hundred capacity, uh, filled with tables and chairs and there's one table and chairs right in front of the band where there's like three people sitting around. And then there's another one that is um, you know, two two tables over. And that is our friend that came with us to the show in our car. <laughs> um, the people sitting in front of the stage, I don't know who they are. They might have been friends of uh, somebody else in the band, but I didn't know them personally. And we started playing, and within five minutes, I saw them start like looking at each other, looking at each other, and like giggling and just kind of like laughing. And then about two minutes later, they all just sort of like nod and stand up together and walk out. Did and, Did your you know, friend leave like too, or no? Because our friends came in our car. So. They <laughs> <laughs> 
right. That, um, that, that would have been terrible. That would have been terrible if they actually got up and left, too. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I doubt if they wanted to. I mean, I, I think one of the people was my girlfriend at the time, and she, you know, she entertained um, my sort of delusions of grandeur about how amazing this group was. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm sure... You know, she, she probably saw a much clearer perspective. Yeah, and actually <laughs> yeah, your vision seems to be clouded sometimes while you're in in the moment or in the band there. But you know, uh, now you got that damn 2020 hindsight vision, and right. uh, you're like, oh. <laughs> you're like, wow, this sounds bad. <laughs> the same same project we we put out a record, and and you know, I don't want to you know, badmouth create because I really do feel like we made some really cool stuff and there's there's some of it that I you know, I listen to you now and I'm like, wow, that's really cool. You know, that we just like totally just on the spot made up this song and it, it was cool. Um yeah. but I remember we, we made a record and it was like the first kind of C D it was it was a CD, it definitely wasn't a record. Um but we made a CD and it was kind of the first C D that I had been involved in as like uh, and probably my first experience recording something that was, I was like, okay, this is, you know, in part my project, right? Yeah. Where I am, you know, sort of co-leading this project with these other people. And I remember, uh, this was now, I think this is my senior year in college, and there's somebody who I'd gone to high school with that had come to, uh, go to the same college as me, and, you know, who I had seen maybe four times, you know, since graduating high school. Uh, they were actually at my apartment because my roommate was had some other, you know, some unrelated thing. So coincidentally, I see this person from high school, and I'm like, "Get this out! We just made this CD. It's, you know, it's it's so awesome. The band is so cool. Like, you know, just totally doing that whole thing. Oh yeah. Um, and and so so she buys the CD for ten bucks, and uh, you know, I never hear anything, and. <laughs> And then, you know, maybe a couple of weeks later, she she's back in our apartment because of, you know, the same thing as before, whatever this project was. And I'm like, what did you think of the CD? You know, like, isn't that, isn't that awesome? And she does, she does go like, well, um, it's, it's interesting. Is, is it supposed to sound like that? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I feel like every musician probably goes through that or something similar to that at some point in their life. But, um, for me, that was, that was another one of those like moments that, you know, at the time was just sort of like, Oh, I guess she didn't like it. Um, but I feel like looking back on it seems a little more significant in terms of feeling like eventually just feeling burned out on the idea that I'm making music for myself. You know what I mean? That like fundamentally what I'm doing, that the, the purpose of it is to musically satisfy myself and make, you know, make something that I think is cool. And I don't care if anybody else likes it because, you know, I'm an artist. I'm not an entertainer. You know what I mean? And, and I feel like that's something that from being in music school, you sort of get indoctrinated with, the, you know, that idea that like it's about making great art. And, yeah, you know, it's it's not about entertaining people. That's you know that that's like somehow lower or beneath or less than. And you know, there's sort of the apocryphal story of Miles Davis turning his back on the audience, right? And aside from the fact that that's 
you know, that that's sort of a lot like, like it's it's more of a lore kind of myth thing than it is real. Um, I feel like that's one of those stories that you know you really at least for me I really bought into that it's like oh well you know Miles Davis didn't need to care what his audience you know thought about anything he just did what what was musically you know the the artistic right thing to do <laughs> at all times and then it just worked out and I mean <laughs> looking back on that mindset it's like wow that's incredibly naive because Miles Davis absolutely was aware of his audience and making decisions you know, in part based on how his audience is going to react to something. Yeah. Um, or what, you know, what direction he's trying to go and what audience he's trying to attract. And, um, but, you know, I feel like that just sort of the, the, the idealism, ideologically driven, like I make music because making music is important with a capital I. <laughs> yes, I got you. I got you completely on that. And, yeah. you know, you'll run into that a lot. It doesn't even have to be musicians that went to, like, music school about that. It's just some people who take their specific genre, like, that seriously. Right, right, right. It's it, yeah. it's not just music either. It um, blurs all <laughs> forms of entertainment. Like the artist that has one dot on the painting and be like, it's art. It's not mm-hmm. about the one dot. It's about all the negative space. If you don't see it, right, you're not right. a true artist. Or right. something along those lines, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, to what degree is it that, like, because I spent so much time studying music so intently and listening to so much stuff and, you know, getting all of this knowledge that I developed this, you know, sort of more discerning ear to be able to create this, like, more advanced form of musical communication that if you don't get it, it's just because you don't, you know, you're not advanced enough to get it versus how much of it is just like up the emperor's new clothes. Like, you make something that sounds like crap and people don't like it because it sounds like crap. Yes, <laughs> yes. Like, you know, that's, I feel like that's always a struggle with any music that, you know, any anytime you're trying to do something that's interesting, right? I yes. mean, which is you know, kind of a double-edged sword of a word uh, when you're talking about music. But, it's you know, when you're trying to do something that's interesting, it's like... There's always a chance of it going bad. Yeah, there's always the chance that, you know, that, and I and I feel like to a certain extent, you kind of have to, like, being a musician is in large part having faith in the Emperor's new clothes, that they really exist and that they mean something. And, you know, a lot of the sort of touchstones of, of you know, quote-unquote serious music from the 20th century is stuff that, like, people don't really want to listen to as far as, you know, at least jazz and classical music. There's a lot of it that you know, your average person, if you put it on and they don't have any context to appreciate it and don't have, you know, any sort of frame of reference for it, it's just like, well, that, that just sounds bad. Why are you listening to that? Why would I want to <laughs> put myself through that, you know? Yeah. Um, so, anyways, I, you know, once I graduated from college, it became quickly apparent to me that there was no composition job waiting for me to make the type of music that I thought was cool at the time. Yeah. Um, and that nobody was trying to hire me to make like weird avant-garde, you know, uh, interesting music. And yeah. I'm getting a job um, with, again, and this was my friend Ian, uh, who played trumpet and create. He was at the time working for this company. It was a, uh, a market research company. 
and they did market research for the movie industry. And at the time, they had like 95% of the market research business in the movie industry um, was like ran through this company. So, I mean, have you ever gone where like there's somebody standing there with a sign and he's like, go see the new Ben Affleck movie, you know, for free and just fill out a questionnaire? Yeah, yeah, um, I've seen that. That was you? Yeah, so I was basically, not that wasn't me, but that was the company I was working for. I was okay. sort of an office group for that company. Um, and I spent two years basically doing a nine to five, nine to six, you know, five days a week, sitting at a desk, typing numbers in spreadsheets, um, pretending like I was working when I didn't have any work, but really just surfing the internet. Um, you know, like I would, uh, Thursday was a big day because the LA Weekly would come out on Thursday and that, you know, provided at least like 30 or 45 minutes of, of solid entertainment <laughs> time. Um, but, you know, it was basically I was, I was incredibly miserable. And by the end of that two years, I had pretty much stopped making music altogether. Like I, I would come home and play video games um, with my, my friends and, and, you know, roommates and whatever. Um, because all I wanted to do was just like zone out. So I had such an, you know, intense day of pretending to be busy at this job. And it's crazy how much that can be draining too. Like just right? pretending to be busy right? and doing something yeah. you don't care about. So what is it that pulled you out of that slump and got you back into creating music? Okay. So a couple of things. One, the Wilco record Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Um, I can definitely say was the turning point for me as far as getting the, 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 the sort of bridge from being into super weird avant-garde. You know, I only listen to jazz and classical music, and uh, I hate all popular music because it's it's too easy and whatever. Um, that was the first sort of rock record that I really got into. When I was like, oh wait, I have no idea how to make these sounds on this record. Like, and you know, I can. Because, uh, you know, a lot of music school is learning to analyze music and break it down into notes and rhythms and, you know, learning how to describe it accurately. And that takes a lot of the mystery out of it, which can make stuff that, you know, when you, when you just listen to it and you're like, oh, it sounds great. Um, and then you start to break it down and you're like, oh, this is the same four chords repeating over and over again. Uh, and then that's all you can hear. You know what I mean? It's just this like repetition and it kind of ruins the, the illusion or the, you know, whatever it is, the effect of just like luxuriating in the sound of what you're listening to because your, you know, sort of front brain turns on and is like, oh, it's a 1625 chord progression or whatever. Um, and so this, that record in specific, uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot was kind of the, the first record that I, I checked out and I was like, oh, I get it. <laughs> like this is this is art too. This is interesting. This is all of those things. But this is also something that I want to just tone out and listen to. This is like enjoyable to listen to. This, you know, these are like melodies that I want to you know sing along to or hum along to. Um, and if I want to like really get analytical with it and try to like pick it apart and listen to all the different things that are going on, like there's lots of stuff to kind of keep my mind busy. But I also enjoy this music. It's it's not just that it's intellectually satisfying, but it's like emotionally satisfying and, and physically, orally satisfying. Um, awesome to listen to. 
And so that was that was one big thing. Because once that happened, and once I sort of figured it out with that record, all of a sudden, all of the other stuff that, you know, everybody was like, oh, you know, like, Radiohead, OK Computer. Like, I, it, I was very late to the party with Radiohead. Um, mainly because I was like, Radiohead fans, I, I can't, I can't handle it. I can't deal. Like, you, you guys are way too over the top. Like, whatever this is, it must, it must be terrible. And then, like, you know, I finally listened to OK Computer and I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> okay, I get it. I see why everybody thinks this is so good. <laughs> right on. Um, and so anyways, that, you know, that sort of started me down a path that led to country music and led to Bob Dylan and led to, you know, sort of all of the, the, the canon of rock and popular music um, and, and sort of taking on a new, newfound appreciation um, for all of that. Um, and two other things. One was that uh, around that time, recording gear started to become a lot more affordable. And the idea that you could, like, make a record on your laptop, I feel like that kind of, you know, because we're talking early 2000s now, um, that at least for me, that became, you know, that was like, in working at that shop, it was like, oh, I could afford to go buy a laptop and I could start, you know, quote unquote, producing music, uh, meaning I could, you know, start messing around with uh, Acid and SoundForge with the program. <laughs> um, yeah. That um, but that, you know, that sort of journey as a, as a producer started um, for me then. And then the other big thing was that I got laid off from the job at the market research company because that was, I mean, obviously <laughs> I was not the best employee at the time. It was like, Oh God, what am I going to do? But, you know, in retrospect, that ended up being like the best possible thing that could have happened because if I had stayed working there, I probably wouldn't be playing music. You know, you hear that a lot, you know, it's a lot of times people are like, I got laid off and I was like, oh my God, this is going to suck. But then it turns out being the best thing that has happened to them because they were able to uh, pursue something else that was more fulfilling and more what they were meant to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, th I think that's a, a lot of it is that, that sense of this is what I'm meant to do. And I think, you know, again, being in music school, I sort of had this this mindset that it's like, oh, I'm not good enough to do this because there's somebody that can do it better and there's somebody that can do it better. And by it, meaning some specific technical aspect of music making. Um, and so it sort of forced my hand as far as trying to, you know, it's like, all right, either I'm going to be a full-time musician and just dive into this and do whatever I can do. Uh, and, you know, scrape together a living is, is however I'm able to, um, or I'm going to, you know, start making resumes. Yeah. So how did you go from uh, being unemployed to getting that first studio musician job? So the first studio musician job, uh, I believe that I had, um, you know, during this period of unemployment. I mean, there was various recording projects that I was doing um, you know, that had like stuff that sort of grew out of create, for example, there was a band called Toka and Toka, um, was, so create, I've been working with a producer on a record and the producer 
knew these other guys that had this project called Toka, and they were like, hey, we need horn players. And so um, the producer was like, oh, you should call these dudes that play in this band Create that I'm working with. And so that ended up being me and Ian went and recorded with this band Toka um, and did, you know, one recording session on a couple of their songs. Uh, and then over the next, you know, two or three years, um, I would call them up every, you know, three or four months and be like, hey, you guys got any more songs? Like, I want to record some music. You guys have a studio. Like, you know, when can I just come over and, and play some stuff? Uh, and, you know, they were stoked because they were getting uh, horns. Yeah. And, you know, it was just sort of like any, anything they could think of that they were working on that might need horns on it, I was happy to just come in and try some stuff out. Uh, and for me, it was a real education as far as, like, what you can do in a recording studio versus the, the mindset of being a, a trumpet player, for example, that comes in and you put a chart in front of them and they play the, the song. You know, I mean, they play the trumpet part in the song versus when you're in that studio context, it's like, okay, I'm going to record this trumpet part and then I'm going to set up another track and I'm going to record a harmony with the trumpet part. And then I'm going to set up another part and I'm going to record this trombone part. And before you know it, it's like, okay, I've recorded a, a marching band. Um, some sort of elaborate tapestry of sound that, you know, you can't do by yourself playing one instrument. But, you know, if you have a microphone and a multi-track recorder, you can... You can make a whole orchestra. Right, right. So I feel like Toko was kind of the project that really opened, you know, that, that was sort of the, the first chance I got to, like, experiment doing that specific kind of overdubbing thing, which is really kind of where my, my niche has, has ended up in the recording world. But anyway, you know, so I was doing Toka, uh, you know, and it was like less and less and less the longer I went on with that job. And then once I got laid off, it was like, oh, okay, let me hit these dudes up. And uh, so I, you know, I recorded with them. Um, but then... Uh, Craigslist was my first like paid recording situation, um, and the, there was a producer, this guy named Josh Rumor, who to this day is one of my good friends, and um, he actually moved to Austin, Texas, uh, and he has a company called Indango Productions, out, uh, that's now based in Austin, Texas. But he was uh, working on a record, and you know, put an ad out on Craigslist saying, "Hey, I need a horn player. Uh, you know, I need like a trumpet player." or a French horn player, or somebody that can do some brass on my, like, rock opera. Which okay. Was, you know, he was recording at the time. And, you know, I want to say that paid $100, and I went to this recording studio, the event for the day, and I sat there and recorded for, like, eight hours straight. Like, just, which, you know, I feel like on any instrument is difficult, but on trumpet and, and brass instruments is is a lot <laughs> that's a long time yeah i imagine that made the lips pretty raw by the end of the day oh yeah <laughs> yeah by the end of the day there wasn't much sound coming out um but it was it definitely was like okay yeah this is this is what i should be doing in as much as you know for eight hours i was like stoked to sit there and come up with, you know, help come up with the arrangements and, and contribute ideas musically and, you know, try to lay down the parts and, and figure out what's going to go where and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, and also just the, the feedback that I got from Josh and from the, the engineer he was working with 
Um, and you know, they seemed to be like, because my expectation was like, well, you know, but I'm not like that great of a trumpet player. So, you know, I, I, I this, this could go really wrong and I could totally not be the right guy for what they want to do. And, and, um, you know, I think I went into it with a, a bit of anxiety and it was like, they were, they seemed to be really into what I was doing in a way that encouraged me to be like, oh, okay, well maybe, you know, maybe this is what I should be doing as far as a way to actually make money that sort of utilizes these compositional skills and the, the creativity and the arranging and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but isn't completely dependent on building an audience for it. Of course, you know of I mean? course, it, yeah. It doesn't require selling it on a large scale in order to be profitable. And you're not... You're not the front man, so you the weight isn't necessarily on you to promote it. You know, it, right. you just go right. in, right. do your job, and you're done. Um, right. So, how long have you been doing um, doing uh, studio sessions or session work? I would say almost twenty years at this point. I mean, I, the very first, I would say the first like serious recording session I did um, was in college. Uh, for, you know, I was playing in a band of a singer-songwriter at the time. The recording studio at USC, I wouldn't say it was like the Spielberg soundstage or something. Okay. Um, because, you know, she met some engineer who was, you know, needed to record a band for his recording, you know, to get you know, credit for his class. And so um, we went there and, we, you know, we recorded. Um, but other than that, I would say probably around 2004 was when I started to get you know, I mean, I, I I think I was laid off around 2000, sometime in 2003. And so around 2004 was when I started really getting more into it. Um, so, Danny, do you have any advice for people who are looking to get getting started out and finding their place in music? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, depending on what, I guess the, the main piece of advice is, you know, what what's your goal? Like, what's your end point? You know, try to figure out why, what do you want to do and why? And then I feel like you can, once you've answered that question, you can really get into, okay, this is how you get there. Um, and, you know, for me, that was a, a thing that changed kind of continuously. And then at some point it kind of clicked of like, oh, this is what I'm doing. And then it sort of was like, okay, in order to do this, I need to do X, Y, and Z. So for me, that, you know, the sort of the, the shape that took was like, once it kind of clicked that like, oh, doing, you know, being a session guy and doing this, you know, kind of horn overdub thing and being the, the you know, the guy that puts the horns on the tracks um, was a, you know, a career path. It was like, okay, I need to, first of all, eradicate this mentality that I had all through music school and before of like the sort of elitism and the, you know, kind of holier than now, like I play serious music. You're a singer songwriter that knows three chords. So your music is inferior. Um, you know, that kind of mindset, which I feel like if you're a musician and you're a really good, you know, if you're, if you're an instrumentalist on any instrument and you're really good at it uh, and you're not making a living doing it, that might be why, you know, okay. I feel like that's, you know, like I meet a lot of people that are phenomenal musicians and have incredible technique and can play everything and, you know, can play circles around. And 
it's like the, the mindset is I can do this. So I'm really cool. And the mindset of somebody as, you know, and as a band leader, like, you know, when I have to hire other musicians, I don't want to hire somebody that has that mindset. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to hire somebody who thinks my music is somehow less than because they think that, you know, their, whatever their conception is of what's cool uh, is the only thing that's cool. Yeah, of course. And so, you know, one thing that I, I feel like that's a specific thing that doesn't necessarily apply to a lot of people, but I feel like, you know, for, for people that are, say, if you're somebody that's, say, going to college right now and studying music and is then going to be going out into the real world as a musician and looking for work, I would say it's, you know, it's ultimately an extension of being humble or being, you know, with humility of, like, you know, treat everybody's music with respect. Yeah, so basically don't be a music uh, a music elitist. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would say that doesn't generally serve people that are looking to make a living as a, you know, certainly not as a session. All I mean, right. You, you know, you should have opinions. You should, you know, you should know what you're, uh, you know, and, and you're, you should know what you think is cool and all that, but you should be open to everything. And you know, not judgmental, and not. Uh, and, and again, I'm just really kind of talking to my 20 year old self. That like, if I had figured this out sooner, my career would have progressed a lot faster. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you did figure it out. So, um, what are some things that you are doing now, Danny, to uh, promote yourself? Well, I have a website that I've had for a long time, uh, mushroomstone.com, and that's sort of my. You know, that's that's my website. It's just, I mean, it's mainly geared towards session work and, you know, when I apply for a job or a gig or whatever, that's usually where I send people. Um, you know, it's sort of like the, the 21st century version of a resume. Um, I, you know, with with DD Horns, for example, we, we have a show coming up um, on September 10th at the Blue Whale in downtown L.A., and, you know, we've actually made some flyers and are advertising for the show, um, you know, on Facebook and Instagram and whatever, um, and actually doing, you know, something resembling a more traditional ad campaign. Okay. I, you know, as far as the, the fashion stuff goes, I, I find that mostly it comes from word of mouth, and most of the work comes from, I, I show up somewhere and I work for somebody, and then somebody else that's there is like, oh, yeah, I need that for this project. Um, okay. Um, you know, finding, like, internet forums, for example. Like, there's one called GearFlux, which is a, you know, sort of like an audio engineer uh, recording um, discussion forum. And there's, you know, a bunch of people that record music for a living talking about music, you know, talking about recording gear, basically. I mean, they, they talk about a bunch of different stuff, but the, the main thrust of it is, is sort of nerding out about microphones and preamps and that sort of thing. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, those are all a bunch of people that potentially might, you know, find value in, in my services. Um, you know, that might have, because most of those people are musicians in some aspects, or, you know... Are, or looking are for musicians. Right. And, you know, a lot of those people, especially in the kind of rock pop world, 
forms is, is sort of an, an afterthought. And it's, you know, most people don't even know where to start with that. Um, and it's like, they have some recording they're thinking of, like, you know, oh, son of a preacher man, or, uh, you know, whatever that they, it's like, oh, it would be so cool if we could get like horns on this track. But, but how do we do that? Um, and so I find just by sort of being, you know, participating in discussions, um, on, on like message reports and stuff like that, oftentimes, you know, random people will just sort of hit me up and be like, hey, you seem to know what you're talking about with regards to recording trumpet. You know, I have this project, I need some trumpet, can you, you know, can you help me out? Okay, cool. So it's kind of like networking and proximity in a way. Be like, the more people you know and that know you do it, the more of a chance that you're having to get get picked up to come in and record in in the studio. Yeah, yeah, I, I would think so. All right. Awesome. Awesome. So, uh, Danny, what would be a highlight of your career? Like, not necessarily the highlight, but a highlight or two of your career so far. Oh, wow. That's a good question. I feel like I've I've gotten to play on a lot more cool records, or at least, you know, like with with on, on cool people's records than I ever would have imagined that I would have at this point. Um, but a lot of those are just sort of a combination of good luck and good timing uh, and being the right person in the right place at the right time. And, you know, it's not necessarily that, like, what I did on this particular record is, is all that great or is anything I'm, like, super proud of or the coolest. But it's like, oh, I'm on this person's record and, <laughs> you know, this person is cool. So um, I feel like there's a lot of, of that where I could point to this record, you know, won the, a Grammy or this record, you know, debuted at number one on the Billboard uh, album chart or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but mm, I don't know that necessarily in those instances my personal contribution to those records was anything more than, you know, sort of an aspect of factory work. Yeah. Um, and just sort of like, well, they need a trumpet to come in and play this line, and I happen to be the trumpet player that got the call to do it, so now I'm on that record. Um, one thing that, that recently, and this record hasn't come out yet, uh, but I actually just saw it today, they just started taking pre-orders for it, um, and I, uh, actually just pre-ordered the deluxe vinyl edition, um, is, you remember the band Guar? Yeah, I've actually, I actually interviewed, uh, Sleazy Pete. Nice. Uh, nice. that was okay, back so, in my radio days, not for my podcast, but yeah, they're, they're one hell of an experience to see. Yeah. So my, my experience with Guar is not honestly that much. It's sort of one of those bands that like when I was in seventh grade and I went to my rock phase, like, and I was listening to like Death Leopard and Poison and you know, all sort of like hair metal bands. Spandex, glitter and hairspray. Yeah. And Guar <laughs> was like on the periphery as far as like. That's a record my mom won't let me buy. You know what I mean? Like that—that that was my my understanding of Guar was that like, and and my parents were not particularly strict about like what they you know like <laughs> regulating uh, our media intake and producing yeah. it. But I feel like if I had you know if I'd gone to the store with my mom and been like, can I get this Guar record? She would look at it and been like, no. <laughs> <Put that laughs> um, so, anyways, about. Six months ago, I think, I got a call from a producer 
uh, who I'd worked with a, a couple of times, and he said, hey, I'm working on this record um, for this band, and they want some horns. Uh, are you interested? And, you know, anytime somebody says that, I'm like, yeah, of course. Uh, and then, you know, I get a follow-up email, and it's like, okay, it's for this band, Guar. I was like, oh, shit, Guar. <laughs> like, I remember Guar. Um, that's cool. I didn't even know that, like, Guar was still a thing. And and I feel like any band that rocks, you know, the, the masks and the face paint and the costumes and everything, like, in most cases, it's not a real band. It's like one or two people's project, and then everybody else is kind of a hired gun, right? And even, like, you think about, like, Guns N' Roses, right? Like, Guns N' Roses isn't a band. Guns N' Roses is Axl Rose and a bunch of hired musicians, right? Yeah. And I feel like one thing that stuck out to me when I, you know, when I got sent this song, which was, you know, not even a finished, you know, it was just sort of like, okay, here's where we're at with the song. Let's start figuring out the horn arrangement. Was that it sounded like my mental picture of what wire sounded like, like exactly. It was like, oh, this is that band. Like, this is not a bunch of random studio cats and like a singer. This is a band, and this is like this drummer sounds like the drummer from Guar. You know what I mean? <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, it was it was kind of awesome, like listening to it. But then, you know, the, I started up to like, okay, so they want power of power style, like seventies funk horns. Um, but you know, it's Guar, and it sounds like. Why? It sounds like, you know, shreddy, like, prog, death metal. I, I don't know what the, you know, how, how officially you categorize um, the type of metal that yeah. Guar plays. But it's I, definitely I not that, I think they'd like to be called something like intergalactic metal from, like, the planet Scumdoggia or something like that. Okay, uh, so there you go. <laughs> but, no, I, mean, I don't know exactly, but... Parliament than I, you know, than I, than I realized, but... Um, I, you know, it was, so normally when somebody sends me a track, you know, like I want you to put horns on it, um, you know, that's usually a couple of hours of work for me to record the horns, get everything, you know, sounding the way I, I think it should and send them back a bounce and say, okay, here's, here's what we got. Let me know what you think. And, you know, I would say probably seven out of 10 times people are like, okay, great. You know, send us the files. And, you know, once in a while, somebody's like, oh, could you change this or could you do this instead? Um, but with this one, it was like, I, the song was it's like six and a half minutes long. And they had one riff at the beginning of the song that they had sang, that they were like, play this, you know, play this riff at the beginning of the song, which was, you know, fairly obvious, like, okay, right, of course, that's the riff you're going to play there. And then the whole rest of the song, it was like, what am I going to do? <laughs> like, how am I going to make, like, 70s funk horn stuff makes sense in the context of this water song. And I think I ended up spending five or six days working on it, um, which is a really long time for a, for a horn arrangement. Yeah. Uh, for, for me, at least. Uh, to, but it was like the first night, I probably spent five or six hours, and I got that first line recorded, but like to make the horn section fit with these like massive guitars and drums and, you know, and all that. It was like I had to stack like 40 tracks of horns just to make it not sound like wimpy and puny in comparison. You know what I mean? Wow. Um, so I sort of was then stuck with this template of like, okay, everything I record in the song, I have to then record like 40 times because otherwise it's just not going to sound big enough. Um, 
but then on top of that, there was this thing of like, what, what am I going to record? Like, what could possibly make sense with this track that also sort of has any kind of like 70s funk, whatever vibes that they're after? Um, so I, I want to say the first day after six hours, I got their like first riff done and I got maybe the first 20% of the song done. And then the second day, maybe it was at like 40%. And then the third day, I got it to like 70%. And then the fourth day, I was like, by the time I, I finished the fourth day, and, and these are actually more nights because typically I'm, I'm a night owl and so I'm, you know, working from, you know, say eight to two in the morning or something like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at the end of, of, say, the fourth or fifth day, I had finally gotten all the way through the song. And I was like, okay, now there's a horn arrangement from the beginning of the song song like that uh you know I, I could send this to them and say hey what do you guys think yeah and i didn't because i was like i'm at this point my ears were so fried and my brain was just so like you know just completely zoned out that i was like i need to listen to this in the morning with fresh ears before i send it to anybody because i have no idea if any of this is cool and I'm really glad I did that because then it was like the next night I sat down and I listened to it and it's like, oh, okay, this is cool, this sucks, this is cool, this sucks, this is cool. And it was like, there were like two or three sections that I just completely redid because it was obvious listening with fresh ears was like, oh, that's trash. Um, so I redid those and got it to a point where I was like, okay, I feel good about all of this. Like this beginning to end, this arrangement to me makes sense and, and it's something that I think is cool. And... You know, if they don't like it at this point, then I'll, you know, I'll change it however they, they suggest. But at least now I'm confident that I'm setting something that I would be happy if it was on my record that, like, I, you know, that, that, that these were up to my sort of standards of something that, uh, you know, is, is interesting, right? Is, is cool, is like, is, is not, uh, does not suck. I guess. Yes. Well, and so, you know, ultimately I, you know, I then, after doing all that, I sent them the song and then the next day, uh, I got a lot of positive feedback from the producer and I have not yet heard the final, uh, version of the song. And I suppose it's possible that they're going to change it hard and just <laughs> decided to jettison the horns all together. But I, I got the impression that they liked what I did. So. All right. Awesome, man. I can't wait to hear that, uh, come out. I, I think it comes out in October. If I'm not mistaken, I okay. it's called Blood of the Gods is the name of the record. Okay, um, cool. I should actually like check that, so I'm not <laughs> <laughs> totally just making something up. But um, it, it sounds like it could be a Guar album title. Uh, I'm looking forward to it, man. That uh, that is quite the highlight. Uh, recording a track for Guar, and uh, got... I mean, that was definitely a bucket list. Yeah, definitely. Thing that I didn't know was on the bucket list, but then once I did it, I was like, "Oh, okay, cool." <laughs> you can write it on the bucket list and cross it off the same yeah. day. You know, that's yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's always exactly. nice, right there. So I got a couple more yeah. questions for you, Danny. Um, what do you want? your audience to take away when they hear you play on a track could be this guar track you're talking about. Uh, what, what do you want them to take away and remember about your performance? It depends on what, what the context is. I feel like if it's, you know, if it's DD horns, for example, um, I want people to fall in love with the recording itself. And I want them to like, I want that recording to become part of their life. And, you know, for, for whatever, you know, the, the music to, to be something that, um, 
they think of someone not listening to it. You know what I mean? That it's like, it's something that like, oh yeah, I'm going to put that record on because, you know, that makes me feel good or that, you know, has, has all these positive associations or whatever. Um, so I feel like as a, you know, with, with the recording artist hat on, um, the goal is to just sort of make something, well, I, I mean, I guess always the goal is to make something that's cool, right? I mean, I guess that's kind of a vague cop-out of an answer. <laughs> it's a good goal, though, <laughs> to make something right. that's I mean, cool. You know, broadly speaking, that's always the goal, I feel like, in any situation. Um, but, you know, as a recording artist, I think the goal is to make something that's unique and that's your own and that's, you know, something that you feel like, okay, cool, I made that and nobody else could make that because nobody else is you know what I mean? And yeah. then, like, it's, you know, the sort of individual aspect of it. I feel like as a session player, and when I'm working for other people, my goal is to serve the song, ultimately. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's to serve the artist, um, as far as, like, what my, my immediate goal is, is to make the artist and or the producer and or whoever's signing the check happy. <laughs> that's, that's also a good goal. I did it, <laughs> you know, that they got their money's worth, and that's always, you know, that that's sort of the immediate short-term goal, but I feel like the long-term goal is to do something that makes the song better, and to make, you know, do something that, that whatever the song is, whatever the, the context is, whatever, you know, that, like, in some small or large way, whatever is appropriate, that the song is better than it was, it's cooler than it was because of this part that I added. All right, perfect, man. All right, Danny, I have uh, one more question for you. Before we get to that final question, uh, one last chance to uh, plug what you have going on, uh, where people can find you on the Internet, and uh, you know, just contact information if you want to throw that out for people to find your corner of the Internet. Yeah, for sure. So you can find me at www.mushroomstamp.com. Uh, I'm, you know, on Facebook and Instagram and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Facebook is Danny T. Levin. Instagram is at Baby Netty. Um, my recording studio setup uh, is on Facebook as Mushroom Stamp Productions, which is, um, you know, my website is mushroomstamp.com, and Mushroom Stamp Productions is kind of the, the name of my recording studio production company right. slash whatever. Um, so if you look for that, you can, you know, that's generally going to find me there. Um, Double D Horns is, uh, well, we're calling it now DD Horns. So DD Horns is, uh, ddhorns.com and Instagram, Facebook, all that sort of stuff. If you look at DD Horns, uh, that's the letter D twice and then horns. Um, you can find us there. That's mostly where, where I'm at these days, internet wise. Um, is, is those places all right great i'll make sure to put those in the show notes for you uh danny and uh i have that one final question for you here it's the title question of the show danny t levin how do you live uncontained i think primarily by focusing on the fact that music is a calling before it is a profession Uh, and that by keeping that in mind primarily, uh, that allows me to maintain some perspectives when things, you know, professionally speaking, aren't going the way that I 
want them to be, whatever, you know, professional situations might come up with things less than ideal. Um, you know, I, anytime that I'm not busy recording at night because somebody has sent me some tracks and are, you know, paying me money to, to record on them, uh, I will be busy recording something else that isn't necessarily a, a you know, a, a working professional situation that is either for myself or for, a, you know, friends project or whatever, um, that I am constantly doing it just to do it. And my experience has been that by focusing on that, the gigs happen. They, they okay. come up, they, they, the work tends to show up um, as long as I sort of keep my focus on doing my thing. Um, and, you know, I would say one, one example, and this also kind of goes to, this would have been maybe my second or other sort of answer to your question about, um, highlights, um, is, so there's this band called Once in Future Band. Okay. And, uh, Once in Future Band is fronted by a guy named Joel Robino. And Joel Robino was literally my best, best, you know, closest friend from age, from my kindergarten through third grade. We were inseparable, like, you know, super close friends. Uh, and then I moved uh, at the start of fourth grade, and I didn't see Joel for, I don't know, you know, 15, 20 years, something like that. And okay. um, I want to say 2007 or so, I opened up a, a copy of Rolling Stone, and there's a picture of Joel holding a trumpet, like sitting in a, you know, like a tour van. I think he was on tour with his band Howlin' Rain at the time. Uh, wow. but I saw, you know, I saw this picture and I was like, oh, there's a guy playing a trumpet. And I, and then you know, I looked at the caption, and it was like Joel Robino. And I was like, wait, no way. That, there's no way. That's, that's Joel. Right. Um, and you know, when, when at the time that, uh, before I moved, neither one of us was really like, I mean, I'm sure we talked about music all the time, but neither one of us was like, oh yeah, I'm going to be a professional musician. Like neither one of us played trumpet and, you know, didn't any of that sort of stuff. Um, and so I, you know, th th it was like, wait, this guy is doing the same kind of thing I'm doing because at the time I was doing a lot of touring and, you know, a lot of kind of indie rock, uh, indie rock ice. And so I ended up reconnecting with Joel when his band came through Los Angeles and, uh, you know, sort of reestablished re communication. Um, and then, Maybe a year or two later, he was, you know, I, I don't know if he was posting on Facebook or whatever, but I saw something about he had a project that he was working on that was like his new band um, with these guys, uh, Raj and Eli, called Once a Future Man. And I hit him up and I was like, dude, send me, you know, send me the songs. I'm going to put horns on, on something. Like, send this to me. I want to <laughs> mess with this. And this is the other song that I probably spent a week at least, um, on was, was a song called The Old Brain, which ended up coming out on my first EP, which is called The Brain EP. Um, but it was a song that just, you know, it was a, a I want to say like a David Bowie kind of queen, uh, like yes, or something like that. Like, if they're, they're sort of a prog, prog pop rock kind of group. Um, All right. And anyways, I, you know, I ended up spending, you know, a, a week of, you know, four or five, six hour sessions recording on the song to the point where it was like, okay, this is, 
you know, I, I cannot do any better work than this. This is as good as I'm going to do on this song or on any song ever. And um, that has turned in, you know, I, I feel like that song, which, you know, I did just like, hey, send me it. I'm going to, I'm going to just do it. Um, and it wasn't anything I did, you know, professionally speaking, where I was like, okay, I'm going to play on this track and then I'm going to pay money or, you know, I'm going to play on this track and then the producer of this, this track is going to hire me for something else. But it was just something that was like, oh, this is my friend and he's making cool music and I want to be a part of it. So I'm just going to go all out and I'm just, I'm doing this. Okay. And, um, that track has, you know, resulted in at this point, at least one other person that I played it for that has been on the spot been like, Hey, how much do you charge? I need, I need this on my, you know, on my stuff. Um, and I, I feel like that's, you know, that's kind of the, the, the way I am able to live the most uncontained, I guess, is that I just do my thing regardless of whether my thing is, you know, paying or not. Awesome, dude. That music just has to come out one way or another. That's awesome, man. It sounds like, like you have found your calling. Thank you for talking to me today about the exciting world of of the of the music industry, not just the studio musicians, but how you got, uh, you know, how you became more of a fully developed musician. I appreciate your time. And I have one final thing for you to do. And that is just, I have all my guests sign off the show. Danny, will you do me the honor of signing off the show today? I would be honored to. Uh, and let me first of all say thank you so much for having me. And it's been, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you and, Thank you. Um, you know, get to chat. Uh, and yeah, signing off the show. Uh, I am Danny T. Levin, and I live uncontained, and I hope that you do too. And that does it for another episode of Uncontained. Thank you for listening, and thank you to my guest, Danny T. Levin, for uh, taking the time to join me and talk about the music industry and what it's like being a musical gunslinger, a hired horn, and sharing some stories. And thank you for listening and uh, supporting the show. Once again, Uncontained t-shirts available at tpublic.com just search uncontained in the search bar and uh you'll be one of the first to be able to wear uncontained and just for sticking around i have a bonus track for you by danny uh that he's hooked us up with it's called crimson scarves check it out right here and until next time live uncontained Followed your footsteps right up to your door. The curtains were drawn, it was dark. I knocked on the window to tell you that I'm here to brighten your day with a spark.
have to Put off your bed Right over the edge Was a pooling of your crimson scars Your foot on the bed was naked and red and your toes pointed up to the stars Moon of the pillow props up your head Your eyes ever slightly ajar Don't see a breath even though it's cold Oh, 